there are those who make the contention that no woman should ever dare to aspire to the White House, that this is a man's world and that it should be kept that way. Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Who can beat Donald Trump? That's the question Democrats are asking as the party heads into the 2020 presidential primaries. A record number of contenders have thrown their hats into the ring. Six are women, including four U.S. senators, Amy Klobuchar, Christian Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, and Elizabeth Warren. How are we going to fight? Are we going to fight because we're afraid? Are we going to show up for people that we didn't actually believe in, but because we were too afraid to do anything else? That's not who we are. That's not how we're going to do this. It's the largest number of women ever to seek a major U.S. party nomination. I know we have still not shattered that highest and hardest glass ceiling, but someday someone will, and hopefully sooner than we might think right now. Can a woman win the White House? I am running for president of the United States. Well, I'm going to run for president of the United States. I am a candidate for president of the United States. I stand before you to announce my candidacy for president of the United States. Anne-Marie Slaughter joins this episode of Opinion Has It to talk about the odds of success and the challenges these female candidates will face as they head into the 2020 primary season. Did you have any trouble finding it? No, we didn't have trouble finding it, but there was some road work down oh, the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a little difficult to get through. Dr. Slaughter served as an advisor to Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign. She is a former director of policy planning at the U.S. State Department and currently serves as the president and CEO of the think tank New America. She is Professor Emerita of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton University. We join her today at her home in Princeton, New Jersey. Dr. Slutter, let's start with the number of people running in the Democratic field. Long before people even go to the polls in November 2020, candidates are going to face the issue of, quote unquote, electability. And it's an issue that none of the six women seeking the party's nomination will avoid. But what is electability? And why is the question of whether these women have it being asked? If you actually take a look, most of the women running have one elected office. Electability is the issue that comes up when people question whether or not fundamentally America is ready for a woman president. Uh, and it, it also comes up with men. I mean, I think there's a real question as to whether Bernie Sanders is electable, but it comes up immediately with women. And as a number of really great women commentators have written, Rebecca Traister and, and some others, it's a way of deflecting attention from the issues that a woman's putting forward, from her, her position as a, as a candidate, and shifts the debate to, you know, is she electable, when in the end, the only way to find out whether somebody's electable <laughs> is to vote, you know, to find out how many votes they get. So uh, I think it, it particularly, of course... Now, in the wake of Hillary Clinton's candidacy, it's a way also of knocking women out uh, just uh, and ruling them out uh, on the grounds that, well, Hillary lost and Trump is an alpha male, and so we really can't elect a woman. 
Well, on that, and the Trump being an alpha male, I think there's also this issue that women are quote unquote emotional. <laughs> And there's a study by Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce that shows that one in 10 Americans still believes that men are better emotionally suited for politics than women. Is that low or high? You know, actually, I, th- I was stunned at that number because I thought, wow, we've made real progress. That means nine in 10 Americans don't think that, which I think is in- uh, enormous progress over my lifetime. Uh, I will say, though, I was reading something over the weekend that was reminding us that, you know, John Boehner wept. Know openly all the time, uh, and Fritz Mondale cried, and Muskie cried, and you know this idea that somehow women, you know, are 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 more emotional. I would say any woman who has made it as far as any of the candidates for president have have learned to master their emotions just as much as men learn, because for men it's socialized. It's not it's not biological that they they master their emotions. It's something we learn as we enter situations in which that's necessary. Women have been elected into highest office in Germany, in the United Kingdom, Denmark, Norway. Um, I think about Croatia, Brazil, Argentina. Of course, there are women leaders that we know in India, Pakistan, and even in Turkey. Why have these countries, some with very highly patriarchal norms, been able to do it, but the U.S. has not? It is striking that a number of those countries are highly macho. And for instance, I think Germany is a much more sexist society than the United States is. At least when I'm there, I'm very aware that men don't take me as seriously as men do here. And yet, uh, you know, they have elected a woman. Now, mind you, they've elected a very particular woman, as the British did with Maggie Thatcher. uh, And It's not uh, necessarily representative of their politics as a whole, but I do think it's very striking that other countries have been more willing to do this. In some of those countries, there's the family connection, right? So Indira Gandhi and Benazir Bhutto, uh, there are, and indeed in Argentina, these are the ways women have traditionally entered politics, which is their husband is in office and the husband dies and or something happens and they they take over. Uh, But in others, if you think Theresa May uh, or uh, indeed uh, Angela Merkel, one of the reasons is that it's a parliamentary system. I think that uh, it is easier for women to become head of a party, and thus when the party wins, they become prime minister, than for women to have to take on the electorate as an individual candidate, as happens uh, in the United States. And indeed, We've only got two parties, which is also a function of our system. If we had a parliamentary system and you could have more than two parties in ways that wouldn't then be a spoiler, I think you'd see more women enter politics, more women create their own parties or come together uh, with men to make other parties, and it probably would be easier. You just talked about the two-party system. What about campaign financing? Is that an obstacle to women candidates? No, it absolutely is. Indeed, I've long said that if I lived in Britain, where elections are six weeks and funded by the government, I would have run for office long ago. But here, 
this prospect of spending years trying to raise money, and it is far harder for women to raise money. I mean, Hillary Clinton raised a lot of money, but she was part of an entire Clinton uh, sort of machine that had been uh, in politics for a long time. Uh, you know, I have to say, even as a fundraiser in the nonprofit sector, you see real discrepancies between men giving to men. And of course, it's still men who have the most money in our society, wildly so. <laughs> if you look at, uh, you know, just who the billionaires are, who the centimillionaires are. So th I think that is also definitely a factor. 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Elizabeth Warren is leading the pack when it comes to policy proposals. The Massachusetts senator has been putting out proposals at breakneck speed, so much so that Warren has a plan for it is being printed on T-shirts and tote bags sold on her website. Of all the candidates, Elizabeth Warren has distinguished herself for the detail of her policy proposals. When I think back to 2016, Hillary Clinton also had very concrete policy proposals. And yet Donald Trump is president. Do Americans want to hear about policy? I'm actually of two minds about this. I wrote a column that said that Elizabeth Warren's making the same mistake Hillary Clinton did, and in a way Theresa May has done, that, that it's kind of being a good girl, doing what you're supposed to do, right? Which is to put out policy positions on the belief that you want to be president, you should tell voters what you're going to do if you're president. And that instead, you know, there's Pete Buttigieg, whom I, I like, but he's 37 and he's running on values and Beto O'Rourke. And these, these people suddenly garner all these attention, these men garner all this attention by breaking the rules, not playing by the rules. And I do worry that Elizabeth Warren may be falling into that trap. But I have to say, since I wrote that column, there's another way of thinking about this, uh, that she is taking voters seriously. She is actually saying enough of the social media and the circus around media generally I want to be president. Here's what I would do. I trust you as voters to actually read what I say I would do. And I think combined with a folksy and quite charismatic personality, this sort of she's a schoolmarm drives me nuts because it's the classic way that you marginalize smart women is to say they're the blue stocking or the schoolmarm. That's not true. She has a very folksy, funny personality. She was my colleague at Harvard Law School for many years. And I am beginning to think that actually she really may be on to something, which again is to say, let me talk to you, the voters, and I trust you, and I'm, that you can in fact judge on a higher standard than the dumbed-down version of our politics that we've been forced to accept. The one thing that I've noticed is women are following a certain script and a certain strategy. And you can see it with Elizabeth Warren talking about the policies. And as you just pointed out, men are, you know, they're breaking the rules. And yet the, the notion of how you get to power is that you have to have all of these, you know, credentials and, you know, accomplishments and, and so on and so forth. What does that say about our society that we are so taken in by these men who break the rules and these women who are following 
kind of the norms and putting out thoughtful policies? <laughs> that is a complicated question and an important one. And it's worth noting that the four leading women, uh, Senators Warren and Gillibrand and Harris and Klobuchar, in the first place, they are all senators, which is the classic way you run for president. So they are all playing by the rules, and, uh, and they are putting out uh, policy platforms. You know, in, I remember when I was back at Harvard Law School as a professor, and women raised their hand much less often than men. Any woman who's ever been a professor or, frankly, a public speaker knows this. And I remember once going to Suffolk Law School and giving a guest class, and all these women raised their hands. And afterwards, I said to the, to the pr professor I was visiting, wow, I was really struck by that. And she said, at Harvard Law School, all the women have gotten there by playing by the rules. And playing by the rules for a woman means you better talk less than a man or you're, you're going to pay a penalty. At Suffolk Law School, these women are the first women in their families to go to college, much less law school. They've gotten there by breaking the rules. And I think about that a lot, that many of the women who are making it are making it with the traditional credentials, but that means they have followed the rules. They're not going to be rule breakers. And yet suddenly, just as women are making it that way, we're now venerating disruptors and rule breakers. And I, I don't know that one causes the other, but I feel like women are once again in a disadvantaged position by now being rule followers at a moment where suddenly rule breakers are being venerated. Well, how can we change that? How can we change the dynamic so that the women can actually be themselves, as you talked about, Elizabeth Warren, you know, just talking to people and trusting the voter? Well, you know, we will see. She herself has an interesting background where she's played by the rules in some cases. She has broken the rules in others, and she herself uh, really proved enormous resilience and determination because she came up through the ranks as a law professor, sort of from one school rising, one school after another. And she also did research uh, that the law and economics guys, and I say guys advisedly, didn't like because it was too empirical. It was too focused on real people, like what happens when you go bankrupt. And so she broke the rules there, and she may have a, a blend uh, of doing that. Kamala Harris, too, is, I think, a similar character where she's played by the rules in some cases, but in the other in other situations she was never supposed to be where she is, right? She's a, a African American Indian woman prosecutor. That is somebody who knows how to break rules as well as as follow them. Can a woman win in twenty twenty? I'm beginning to think so. Probably if I had to bet right now in 2019, I'd still bet on a man with a woman as a vice president. But a year ago, I would have said a woman had no chance. <laughs> so I, I'm no longer sure. It, it just may be that 
as much as we thought 2016 there was going to be a woman president, and and I think many, many people, I think the conventional wisdom was in 2020, no, that didn't work, we better go back to a man. I'm not convinced anymore. It may just be that 2020, again, upends those assumptions in the way 2016 did. At least, I'm going to be watching those debates, and I'm not going to be watching those debates with the kinds of preconception about who could be elected and who could not be that I had right after the 2016 election. We've talked a little bit about whether a woman can win the White House, but how can any Democrat beat Donald Trump? What should the nominee focus on and what should she or he avoid? (laughs) I don't, I I honestly think none of us know. I mean, I'm not a political uh, sort of consultant, but even the ones who are, I don't think anybody knows. I think we are in new territory with regard to American politics. I don't think Donald Trump is an anomaly. I think he himself is a is is kind of unique in his mendacity and egotism, although there's plenty of ego among politicians. But we're at a moment of real political change and social change uh, in this country, as well as technological change. So I'm just not sure anyone knows. But that also means I'm not sure there's scripts to follow. I, I do think those candidates who are most secure in themselves and in who they are and offer that to voters are likely to do better than candidates who follow consultants and what they believe to be prevailing political wins. Because I just don't believe we've, we've been in a situation like this before. In addition to the mendacity and egotism that you just mentioned about Donald Trump, his misogyny is very well documented, um, including during the 2016 campaign. And he hasn't really shown any proclivity to change. How should female candidates push back against sexism in the lead up to 2020? I think often about Hillary Clinton's description uh, in what happened of what it was like being on the stage with him when he crowded her. It was loathsome. I mean, I was just trembling almost with, with anger and distress watching it. This is not okay, I thought. It was the second presidential debate and Donald Trump was looming behind me. It was incredibly uncomfortable. He was literally breathing down my neck. My skin crawled. And she says, you know, every fiber in her being wanted to just light into him and tell him to, you know, get back. And and yet she knew that, God forbid, she should be angry. I mean, the only thing worse than being a smart woman is being an angry woman. I mean, think about Michelle Obama and having to avoid the angry woman and the angry black woman, which is even worse. It's, It's ironic that we're seen as being too emotional when, in fact, we learn how to just stifle a lot of these these reactions. So again, I'm not sure any of us know. I think Nancy Pelosi has been brilliant at just, you know, def- uh, kind of goading him. I'm, I often think about uh, the picador in a, in a bullfight, you know, the, who sort of picks it at, at this this bull who, and then, then he gets enraged because she knows how to make fun of him subtly, and he can't 
bear to be ridiculed. So I think humor is one. Ignoring him, he can't stand being ignored. He wants to be the center of everything all the time for good or ill. He is the original, there is no bad uh, publicity. So I could see uh, that. I could see just kind of maturity. Like, you know, you are a child and fine, have your little tantrum. Uh, That's again, Nancy Pelosi does some of that too. Uh, But I do think he is misogynistic because he is and because he also knows it plays. And we are again at a moment of enormous change. And there are many men in the country who have seen their lives upended in lots of ways. And part of that is also their roles in the family, their roles in the workplace. I don't think that alone would be enough to generate this kind of anger, but you put that together with economic decline in many cases, in not being able to support their families. And I don't think it's all that surprising that when your identity is that threatened, you respond with anger and you and this sort of image of the feminist woman uh, is is something that uh, people can can lash out at. So I. I think direct taking him on over his degradation of women is is dicey. And we're going to have to see, you know, how these different candidates, men as well as women, because God help a man, candidate who does not take that on, you know, what's the most effective strategy? But it's not just voters who are feeling neglected or they're feeling marginalized. I think that when when I take a look at politics in Washington, at least from the GOP side, there is very little resistance from the Republicans to Trump's behavior. And I feel like that there has been this growth in misogyny, particularly from the right. And part of that is I think that they are threatened by women in power. Oh, yes. Without any question. (laughs) Well, it's, you know, you watch this in in grade school and high school and college and when i was growing up i was one of the you know a couple of smart girls in my class in in high school and that was it wasn't true in college but by and large it was assumed that boys were smarter and now we're in the age of hermione i say this as the mother of two sons and i love hermione but I think lots of men now feel like women are suddenly smarter, they are better organized, they are multitaskers, and a lot of the the kind of flip assumptions that women have fought against are now playing against men, at least the men of my son's generation, where they, you know women are constantly being lifted up and they are being presumed less Uh, less organized, certainly, and if not less smart, at least certainly less capable of getting really good grades, less omnicompetent. Uh, And that's, honestly, we have to get to a place where we assume both genders are equally talented at many things. There is a, a, a fear, right? A fear of maybe not being able to compete, and anger is often a direct outgrowth of fear on the part of many men, and I think many men who are not overt supporters of Donald Trump, uh, but maybe covert supporters. And part of it is a sense of we need to, to, to right the balance of the world again. For many people, Clinton's loss in 2016 was disappointing because they had hoped her victory would mark another significant step forward for women. But how realistic is 
the hope that beyond symbolic power, having a woman in the White House would advance the cause of gender parity. I mean, when you take a look at Barack Obama's presidency, it did not prevent the rise of white nationalism or Trump's victory after he ran an openly racist campaign. A woman in the White House is not going to single-handedly bring about gender parity or gender equality. But I think you'd be hard-pressed to say that overall Barack Obama didn't advance uh, the cause of African Americans in the United States. The backlash, absolutely, but uh, I believe in dialectical <laughs> uh, advance. And so, of course, you he advances, you have the backlash, but I still think overall countless African Americans and countless whites, as well as people of other races, saw an African-American couple in the White House, saw the face of leadership, saw the face of competence, saw the face of power in a different skin. And that ultimately, for particularly for young people, I still think is fairly transformative. I, and I think equally for women. I mean, I want there to be a woman in the White House before I die. I want, to, I want our daughters to know, hey, you know, power can come in many forms. I do not want a world run by women any more than I want a world run by men. And, you know, I have two sons. <laughs> uh, I, but I, I do think it, it matters. And I still think in so many ways there are deeply, deeply ingrained biases about women in the military, women in national security more broadly, women in economics. We've never had a woman uh, treasury secretary or defense secretary. So we've given women the power of diplomacy. That's the power of talk, but never the power of money or the power of arms, and never the ultimate power of leading the country. And that is, of course, if not the leader of the world, certainly one of the major leaders of the world. I think that matters. Dr. Slaughter, we end each episode with this question. What gives you hope? What gives me hope is that in 2026, America will have its 250th anniversary. In 1976, when I was a senior in high school, we had our bicentennial. In that 50 years, America has changed so dramatically. By 2030, by 2050, we will be... Majority, minority, or more to the point, the way I think of it is, there will not be a default American. You will not be able to say, to be American is to be white, and everybody else has some hyphen attached. To be American will be to be a country that reflects the world in every way, in our ethnicity, our race, our religion. That, to me, is the best of this country. And From the beginning, we've had surges forward and we've had terrible backlashes, really terrible backlashes, backlashes against immigrants and, of course, horrific uh, massacres and and, and prejudice and discrimination uh, against those of color who were born here. And yet we're actually still surging forward more than we're falling back. So what gives me hope is to look at the America of 2026, to think about those 50 years, to think that we're a country where we renew our commitment to our founding ideals, even as we know we fall short. 
and to believe, as I look at the progress women have made, and as I look at an African-American president and an African-American first lady in my lifetime, which I didn't think would have been remotely possible, I still believe in the country and I believe in the process of renewal. Uh, and I look at our young people and I have hope. Dr. Slaughter, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Anne-Marie Slaughter is the president and CEO of the Think Tank New America and the former director of policy planning at the U.S. State Department. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasia Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Jonathan Stein and Rachel Dunham.